All right, good morning once again, everybody. Let's take our Bibles and go to John chapter 11. We are continuing in this series, Jesus is the I Am. And again, it's because Jesus is asserting his divinity when he uses parallel language to what God used when God expressed his name to Moses back in Exodus chapter 3, verse 14. God said to Moses, I am. And Jesus, referring to himself, said, I am. He said even in John chapter 8, before Abraham was, I am. Well, Abraham was 2,000 years before Jesus. So Jesus is trying to communicate that he's God. He's the same God who spoke to Moses in the burning bush in Exodus chapter 3. He's just God who has now taken on flesh. And in the Gospel of John, Jesus attaches seven metaphors to the I am statement. And we've been going through this list over the last few weeks. But for those of you who are jumping in for the first time, here again is that list. In John's Gospel, Jesus says, I am the bread of life. Number two, I am the light of the world. Number three, I am the door of the sheep. Number four, I am the good shepherd. Number five, I am the resurrection and the life. Number six, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And then number seven, I am the true vine. So for today, we're looking at statement number five, when Jesus said, I am the resurrection and the life. Let's pray first, and then we'll read out of John's Gospel, chapter 11. Father in heaven, we just want to thank you as we pause on this Sunday morning to give you thanks, to worship you, even though we are worshiping you separately, even though this physical distancing is in place temporarily. We come together, Lord, with one heart, one mind, one spirit, to worship you, to exalt you, to thank you, Lord, that in the midst of all that we're going through in this confusing time in our world, we lean on you, we trust you. And uh, Lord, we thank you that you are bringing about good things in the midst of a very difficult time. We pray for those who have lost their jobs, that you would provide for them and that you would encourage them. We pray for those who have lost loved ones, that you would minister your grace and your peace to them. We pray for the sick, that you would heal them. We pray for all of our frontline medical uh, laborers and all of our um, first responders. And Lord, just be with them, bless them, help them. Keep them well, keep them safe, and we continue to look to you in these days. We trust you in Jesus' name. And everybody at home said, Amen. Well, we come here in John's Gospel to chapter 11. I'm going to read, it's, it's a rather long story, and there's no real way to shorten it. So I'm going to read first 37 verses of John chapter 11, and this is what it says. Now a certain man was sick. Lazarus of Bethany, the town of Mary, and her sister Martha. It was that Mary who anointed the Lord with fragrant oil and wiped his feet with her hair, whose brother Lazarus was sick. Therefore the sisters sent to him, saying, Lord, behold, he whom you love is sick. When Jesus heard that, he said, This sickness is not unto death, but for the glory of God, that the Son of God may be glorified through it. Now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. So when he heard that he was sick, he stayed two more days in the place where he was. And then after, his, after this, uh, he said to, to the disciples, let us go to Judea again. The disciples said to him, Rabbi, lately the Jews sought to stone you and you are going there again? 
And Jesus answered, Are there not twelve hours in the day? If anyone walks in the day, he does not stumble because he sees the light of this world. But if one walks in the night, he stumbles because the light is not in him. These things he said, and after that he said to them, Our friend Lazarus sleeps, but I go that I may wake him up again. And then the disciples said, Lord, if he sleeps, he will get well. However, Jesus spoke of his death, but they thought that he was speaking about taking rest in sleep. And then Jesus said to them plainly, Lazarus is dead. By the way, the reason why Jesus refers to it, and sometimes in the New Testament, referring to death as falling asleep is because it's, it's trying to communicate to us, God's word is trying to communicate to us that death is not final, that there is hope, that there is life after death. But because his own disciples didn't understand the euphemism, then Jesus speaks plainly and he says, Lazarus is dead. And I am glad for your sakes that I was not there, that you may believe. Nevertheless, let us go to him. Verse 16. And then Thomas, who was called the twin, said to his fellow disciples, let us also go that we may die with him. And so when Jesus came, he found that he had already been in the tomb, that is Lazarus, four days. Now Bethany was near Jerusalem, about two miles away, and many of the Jews had joined the women around Martha and Mary to comfort them concerning their brother. Now Martha, as soon as she heard that Jesus was coming, went and met him, but Mary was sitting in the house. Now Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. But even now I know that whatever you ask of God, God will give you. Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. Martha said to him, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection at the last day. Jesus said to her, and here it is in John 11, 25, Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me, though he may die, he shall live. And whoever lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? She said to him, yes, Lord, I believe that you are the Christ, the son of God who has come into this world. And when she had said these things, she went her way and secretly called Mary, her sister, saying, the teacher has come and is calling you. As soon as she heard that, she arose quickly and came to him. Now, Jesus had not yet come into the town, but was in the place where Martha had met him. And then the Jews who were with her in the house and comforting her, when they saw that Mary rose up quickly and went out, followed her, saying, she is going to the tomb to weep there. And then when Mary came where Jesus was and saw him. She fell down at his feet and said to him, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. And therefore, when Jesus saw her weeping and the Jews who came with her weeping, he groaned in the spirit and was troubled. And he said, where have you laid him? And they said to him, Lord, come and see. Jesus wept. And then the Jews said, come, rather, they said, see how he loved him. And some of them said, could not this man who opened the eyes of the blind also have kept this man from dying? Not everybody believed, not everybody welcomed Jesus with open arms, but nevertheless, Jesus comes here to what in the end is, in a moment I'll read the section where Jesus raises Lazarus from the dead. Now, I personally think this is one of the most beloved stories in all of the Bible, Because of the different components of this story, we see here the compassionate, tender, even emotional side of Jesus as he gathers here because of the untimely death of a close 
personal friend of his, and the anguish that the family of his friend Lazarus is going through because their brother has died. Now, what I find challenging, many things about this story that I find challenging, but as close a friend as Jesus was to Lazarus, and Lazarus was to Jesus, when we are first introduced in the story to Lazarus, he's sick. He's not yet dead. Jesus gets word that his friend Lazarus is sick and near death. His family is urging Jesus to come. And Jesus instead decides to stay where he is, the text tells us, for two more days. I mean, the great physician who can heal anybody and do anything, as it relates to his close personal friend, whom he loves, decides not to make an effort to give any aid to his sick and dying friend, at least not immediately. Now, there are a few observations about this story before we even talk about what does he mean when he says, I am the resurrection and the life. A few quick observations about this story that I find helpful in my life and and I hope might be helpful in your life. The first one is for you note takers. I want you to notice with me here that Jesus is never frantic or in a hurry about anything. I mean, give me one example in the Bible where Jesus appears frantic or in a hurry. You won't be able to find it. Bad news does not alarm him. Sad news does not paralyze him. There is a steadiness and a calm confidence about our Lord that is not only admirable, quite honestly, it's desirable. I mean, who among us couldn't use a little more calm confidence in our lives? I know I could. Just the example of Jesus, the steadiness in the storm. You know, the Apostle Paul reminds us in Philippians 4, 6, and 7, Be anxious for nothing, but in all things, through prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, make your request known to God, and the peace that passes all understanding will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. We need some of this peace that passes all understanding, especially in these days, whatever you might be going through. We all need some of that peace that passes all understanding to guard our hearts and our minds in Christ Jesus. And Jesus sets this wonderful example for us. Somebody just has this steadiness, this calm confidence in the midst of this very emotional news that he's just received here. And so Philippians 4, 6, and 7 says the way that we attain that kind of peace that passes all understanding is through prayer. Make the effort to pray with thanksgiving. Make your request known to God. And the peace that passes all understanding will guard our hearts and our minds in Christ Jesus. Another observation that I see in this story, number two, is that Jesus is not driven by emotion. He is guided by devotion to the Father. I mean, think about it in this story. Despite an emotional moment, Hearing that one of your closest friends is near death, Jesus decided to stay right where he was for a few more days. And don't you know that while he decided to tarry where he was, that in the back of his head he heard in advance the voices of both Mary and Martha, the two sisters of Lazarus, each of them said to Jesus, if you remember as we read the story, when they saw Jesus, when he, when he made his way there and, and arrived, each of them said to him, if you'd have been here, my brother would not have died. Now, I personally don't think they meant that as a compliment. 
You know, I might have to apologize one day to Mary and Martha when I see them. But I suspect that when they said, if you'd have been here, my brother wouldn't have died, it was perhaps with a little sass and maybe even a hand on a hip. I mean, I think it's an attitude here. They were in effect saying, you know, if, if you'd have been here, my brother would not have died. You're late. I think that's what they're saying to him. You're showing up late here. If you had come when we first sent word to you, he wouldn't have died. Now he's dead. And so, again, I might have to apologize to the sisters, but I can't read that any other way. I don't think it was complimentary. I, I think that they were disappointed in him. But Jesus, you see, is not driven by emotion. He is guided by devotion to the Father. So when he gets this word that his friend is sick and dying, he does something that most of us wouldn't have done. Most of us, just without thinking, would have just responded immediately, gone to our friend's bedside and tried to comfort or encourage or pray or whatever. And Jesus just decides, I'm, gonna, I'm not moved by my emotion of the moment or the emotions of other people in the moment. I'm going to be guided by the Father. The Bible says that Jesus only did what the Father told him, and he said what the Father told him, and he was always surrendered in this way with devotion to the Father. And it's important because, frankly, we often do impulsive things based on emotion. We say regrettable things often based on emotion. We think irrational things based on emotion. Emotion is not always bad, but it certainly is unreliable. When our emotions try to dominate our thoughts, Paul would remind us in 2 Corinthians 10, 5, we need to take captive every thought and make it obedient to Christ. Because when our emotions try to dominate our thoughts and actions, we have to stop. We have to take our, our thoughts captive. We have to take a deep breath and we have to ask, what does God want in the moment? Not to be impulsive, but what does God want? Let's slow it down and determine what God wants me to do in the moment. However unconventional that might be, it was certainly unconventional for Jesus just to stay where he was for a couple more days and not to do the expected thing, the emotional thing. The immediate answer that we sometimes think we have is not always the right answer, especially when emotion is involved. So we need to let God lead, not our emotions. Number three, another observation from this story, I've said this many times before, is that God's delay is often for his display. You know, God doesn't work on our timetable. It never has, and he never will. He works on his own timetable. And so we have to adapt to God's timetable, not the other way around. And let me tell you the reason here why Jesus intentionally delayed getting to Lazarus. Obviously, we know the rest of the story, so it's easy to figure out. The reason why Jesus delayed getting to Lazarus when Lazarus was sick and near death was so that Lazarus could die. Was so that Lazarus could die. Now, why? I mean, that seems so uncaring on the surface. Especially to Lazarus's family, no doubt that seemed uncaring. What took you so long? You, you decided to stay where you were for two more days. But, but when we understand the bigger picture of what is happening here, then it makes more sense to us. Let me ask you a question. What would produce the same outcome 
in this story? What would produce the same outcome with a bigger miracle and a greater impact? Would it be if Jesus had healed Lazarus from his sickness or if Jesus had raised Lazarus from the dead? Well, it's the latter. I mean, the greater miracle is raising Lazarus from the dead, not simply healing his sickness, although God could have done either. What he, cho- what he chose to do was to wait where he was so that Lazarus could die, so that when Jesus shows up, there's going to be an even greater miracle than what otherwise would have occurred. Sometimes we want God to fix something, and we want God to fix something now. But his delay is often for his display, the display of his glory, because perhaps he wants to do something bigger. Perhaps he wants to do something greater. And we only limit him when we expect him to do something now. Let God do what God wants to do for his greater glory and perhaps even a greater miracle. And so uh, Jesus waits until Lazarus is dead and so that he can show Jesus, so that he can show that he has power, not just over sickness, but over death and the grave. So when he arrives at the place where they had buried him, which the Bible says here in the New King James is a cave, one of the first things we see here, it's, it's a famous verse, although most people don't know where it is, but it's here, John eleven thirty five, 35, the shortest verse in the Bible, Jesus wept. Now, let me ask you, why did he weep? Why did Jesus weep if he knew that, in fact, he was going to be raising Lazarus from the dead? Well, there's three typical reasons. The first reason is some people think that he wept because he felt badly for Lazarus having to bring him back from paradise. You know, I mean, if if he's in paradise and enjoying life in paradise, um, it's almost a cruel thing to bring him back to the earth. Some people think Jesus wept for that reason. I don't think so. Some people think Jesus wept for himself. That, that he was so sad that people didn't believe that he was able to do what he came to do and they were disappointed that he showed up late. I don't, I don't think Jesus was ever sorry for himself. I think that the most plausible reason why Jesus wept is the third reason, and that is because Jesus wanted to be emotionally present in the moment. Jesus wanted to be emotionally present in the moment. You know, he's fully God, but he's also fully man. And, and he has an emotional side. Now, you know, make no mistake about it. He, he was a man's man, a carpenter, you know, rough and tough, but he wept. David, the Bible says, a warrior, a shepherd, but he also wept. Jeremiah, the prophet, wept. Guys, it's okay to weep once in a while. I mean, Jesus wept here because he's emotionally present in the moment. And the Bible says in Isaiah 53, verse 3, that Jesus was a man of sorrows, and he was acquainted with grief. And so he felt in the moment, and he was emotionally present. And when Jesus arrives here at the tomb, he instructs people what to do. This is the rest of the story. If you have your Bible still open there to John 11, pick it up at verse 38. Verse 38 says, Then Jesus, again groaning in himself, came to the tomb. It was a cave, and a stone lay against it. Jesus said, Take away the stone. Martha, the sister of him who was, who was dead, said to him, Lord, by this time there is a stench, for he has been dead four days. I like uh, the, the King James Version says that she says, Lord, by now he stinketh. All right. 
Verse 40, Jesus said to her, Did I not say to you that if you would believe, you would see the glory of God? And then they took away the stone from the place where the dead man was lying, and Jesus lifted up his eyes and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me, and I know that you always hear me. But because of the people who were standing by, I said this, that they may believe that you sent me. Now when he had said these things, he cried with a loud voice, Lazarus, come forth. Then I read a commentary once that said, he intentionally called Lazarus by name, because if he had just simply said, come forth, all the dead graves, all the dead people in their graves would have come alive. But he specifically says, Lazarus, come forth. And he who had died came out bound hand and foot with grave clothes, and his face was wrapped with a cloth. And Jesus said to them, loose him and let him go. What a remarkable scene that this man who had been dead four days walks out of the tomb still wearing his grave clothes. Jesus said, I am the resurrection and the life. And he said that so that we would understand his power over death and the grave. And then he demonstrated that power by raising Lazarus from the dead. And yet, this is an incomplete picture because Lazarus still died. At some point later, Lazarus died again. You know, he, he died a natural death, even though Jesus had raised him from the dead. It wasn't a permanent raising like the one that the Bible promises for believers in Christ. That's why I say this is somewhat of an incomplete Picture. It was only intended to give us a glimpse of a bigger picture. When Jesus said, I am the resurrection and the life, he who believes in me, though he may die, yet shall he live. When he said that, it was intended to show us that Jesus has power over death and the grave so that we would know that what the Bible says about life after death is true. The Bible tells us things about life after death. And I hope this will be an encouraging, an encouraging word to you. Because all of us are going to face death at some point. All of us are going to die unless the Lord returns and takes us out of this earth before that. We will all experience death. Death is no respecter of persons. And so the Bible tells us that we don't need to lose heart because we have a promise and a hope of life after death. So I'm going to share three simple things with you about what this means by Jesus saying to us, I am the resurrection and the life. What does this mean for us concerning death? Number one, it means that death is not a destination. It's a transition. For the believer, upon death, Paul would write in 2 Corinthians 5, 8, that Our body separates from our spirit, and our spirit goes to be with the Lord. And so Paul said there in 2 Corinthians 5, 8, to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. 
Friends, don't believe what your Jehovah's Witness friends tell you when they come knocking at your door. And they will advance a doctrine. It's a false doctrine called soul sleep. They will tell you that your body goes into the grave and you're there and you're just, you're, you're asleep. Your soul is asleep until Jesus comes again. That's not true. Paul makes it clear, 2 Corinthians 5, 8, to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. As a believer, the moment we die, our spirit separates from our body. And our spirit goes to be with the Lord. And then following later, at some appointed time later, our, our, our dead bodies will be raised imperishable. We get a glorified body that will be reunited with our spirit one day. But the immediate thing that happens upon the death of a believer, someone who trusts Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, is that your soul goes to be immediately in the presence of the Lord. So death is not a destination, it's a transition. It's from this life into eternal life. Helen Keller once said, and I'm sure you know Helen Keller was deaf and blind from the age of two, and she said this, quote, death is no more than passing from one room into another, but there's a difference for me, you know, because in that other room, I shall be able to see, of course. Billy Graham, who died in 2018, he said, quote, One day you'll hear that Billy Graham has died. Don't you believe it? On that day, I'll be more alive than ever before. I've just changed addresses, end quote. And by the way, this is important to know, we are not alone in that transition. From this life to the next, when we die, we are never alone. In Luke chapter 16, Jesus teaches this story, and in the story, he talks about an unnamed unbeliever and a named believer, and in the story in Luke 16, that guy's name is Lazarus too, probably not the same Lazarus here, and what Jesus says is that when Lazarus died, because he was a believer in the Lord, In Luke 16, verse 22, it says that Lazarus was carried by angels to paradise. You see, when we die, the Bible tells us that angels are dispatched to come and assist us and to be with us in the transition from this life to the next. You're never alone through death. For those of you who have always worried about your loved one, they were alone when they died. They were not alone. Because the Bible says for believers, angels are dispatched. And they carry us to the place of the Lord. Number two, it's an important thing for us to know this. That death is a reunion with our loved ones for those in Christ. It's a reunion. When you know Christ and your loved ones have known Christ, going to heaven is a glorious reunion. One of the greatest joys and comforts that we have as believers regarding death is knowing That we shall be reunited, and by the way, I firmly believe the Bible teaches, and we shall recognize our loved ones in heaven. Let me give you just a couple of reasons why I believe we're going to recognize them. For example, in John chapter 21, after Jesus has risen from the dead and he has his glorified body, he still maintains uh, the same resemblance. And so in John 21, he goes up to the Sea of Galilee. He's standing on the shore of the Sea of Galilee. Some of his disciples are, have returned to fishing. At first, they don't recognize him. But that's only because they're so amazed and overjoyed. But then, immediately after their disbelief, then they realize, this is Jesus. So they recognized him. And they went swimming to him to get to him. 
So he was recognizable in his glorified state. We also see in Luke's gospel chapter 9 when Jesus took Peter, James, and John up on the Mount of Transfiguration. And it tells us that along with Jesus appeared Moses and Elijah. And it tells us that Peter, James, and John recognized Moses and Elijah. But they had never met them. Moses and Elijah were hundreds of years before the disciples. And yet they knew them. They recognized them. And of course, Paul will tell us us in 1 Corinthians 13 verse 12. He says, now in this present age, I know in part... But then, when I'm with the Lord, I shall know fully, even as I'm fully known. So if we can recognize our loved ones now, and we only know things in part, why shouldn't we be able to recognize them then, when we shall know fully, even as we're fully known? So I do believe that death is a glorious reunion with our loved ones, and we will recognize them in Christ. This is why the Bible says in 1 Thessalonians 4.13, we grieve... When we lose a loved one, but not like those who have no hope, because we have this hope that we will be reunited with our loved ones in Christ and we will recognize them. And so, number one, death is not a destination, it's a transition. Number two, death is a reunion with our loved ones for those in Christ. And finally, number three, death is not the end, it's the beginning of eternal life. In John 14, verse 19, Jesus said, Because I live, you also shall live. This is why he said, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me, though he were dead, yet shall he live. And he who will live and believes in me shall never die. Now, of course, he's making allowance for physical death. He's talking about the reality is that the human soul never dies. Now, this is very important for you to grasp. Please hear me on this. Heaven is a real place, but so is hell. The human soul never dies. The question becomes, where will you spend eternity? Will you spend eternity in heaven with the Lord? Or will you spend eternity in hell eternally separated from him? Now, I know that some of you watching might have this question, or if not you, some of your friends have this question. What kind of a God would have created hell in the first place. You know, I thought God is a loving God. Why would he ever send people to hell? All right, this is important for everybody to understand, so please listen carefully. In Matthew 25, verse 41, it tells us that God designed hell for Satan and his demons. That was the original intent behind hell, Matthew 25, verse 41. That hell was created for the devil and his angels, for demons. It was not originally intended for us, all right? But we end up joining Satan and his angels by choice when we reject Jesus as Lord and Savior. But now, hear this also, 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 9, know the heart of God because 2 Peter 3, 9 says that God wants none to perish but all to come to repentance. So put the two things together. Here's the heart of God. He created hell originally for Satan and his angels. And as it relates to humanity, he wants none to perish, but all to come to repentance. We have to work hard at going to hell. I mean, we do. Friends, listen, you have to intentionally reject Jesus as Lord and Savior in order to join Satan and his angels in hell, which is God's original design for hell. 
His original intent for us was to spend eternity with him. But when mankind sinned and broke relationship with God, severed relationship with God, now mankind was destined for hell except that, here's the good news, God so loved the world that he gave his only son, Jesus Christ, that whosoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. God made gracious provision so that no one should have to go to hell, but that everyone, by trusting in Jesus, by believing that Jesus is the I am, the resurrection, and the life, might have that life in Christ, that fullness of life. A couple of weeks ago, we talked about in the Greek, there's two words for life, bios, meaning natural life. Biology is the study of that life. And then there's zoe life, the kind of life that transcends the natural and the physical, the, the, the life that is eternal, the life that is completely full in him. This is why Jesus said, I came that you might have life, zoe, and life more abundantly. This is what the Lord came to offer us. Forgiveness of sins by his death on a cross so that we could go to heaven and experience this kind of life that he came to give us. But it has to be a choice. God opened heaven wide for as many as would believe. But there is only one way to get there. You have to trust that Jesus is the resurrection and the life. That he's the way to be saved. He suffered a death on the cross for our sins. Though he had committed no sins, he became sin for us, that in him we might become the righteousness of Christ. Friends, heaven is described in the Bible as a beautiful place. A place literally with streets of gold and gates of pearl, where there will be Revelation tells us no more sorrow, no more pain, no more suffering, no more tears. To be with the Lord forever and ever and ever. So the question becomes, are you ready? Are you ready whenever that day comes? Are you ready to die? Do you know for certain that when you die, you will go to heaven? Are you prepared to see Jesus? Because if you're not, today would be a great day to make that decision. To trust him as your personal Lord and Savior. God made a way for us where there was no other way. That we might have relationship with him through faith in Jesus Christ. He is the resurrection and the life. And so I invite you to trust him with me right now as your personal Lord and Savior. Let there be no doubts in your heart that when that day comes, you're going to go to heaven and you're going to see Jesus because you know that your sins have been forgiven and you've trusted him as your Lord and Savior. That relationship begins with a decision and you can make that decision starting right now, starting here today, by praying a prayer and opening your heart to Jesus Christ. When you pray this prayer with me, I'm going to lead in a prayer to invite you to trust Christ as your Lord and Savior. And I want to invite you right where you are watching this video right now, maybe listening by audio, maybe live or later by podcast, whatever it might be. Pray this prayer with me and invite Christ to come into your life. Trust him as your Lord and Savior. 
What do you have to lose? You have everything to gain and nothing to lose. So I want to invite you to pray this prayer with me right now. I'm going to go slowly so you can repeat it after me. Just pray this with me. Say, Lord Jesus, I thank you that you are the resurrection and the life. That you offer me life after death. So I trust you as my Lord and Savior. I ask you to forgive me of my sins. I pray that you'll come into my heart right now and be Lord of my life. I surrender to you, Jesus. I trust you. Thank you for loving me. Thank you for dying on a cross for me. I want there to be no doubt that on the day I die, I'll go to be with you forever and ever and ever. So I trust you right now by faith in Jesus' name. In Jesus' name, amen and amen. If you prayed that prayer with me, we'd love to hear from you so we can rejoice with you. Just be bold about making known that you trusted Christ as your Savior. Text the church. The phone number's on the screen for you, 703-844-9969. And just text the words, I have decided, or even if just one word, decided, so that we know that you have trusted Christ as your personal Lord and Savior. And then we'll follow up, and if you want to give us more information, you don't have to, But we'll be glad to send you a Bible and a book by Greg Laurie for new believers. So at least let us know that you trust Christ as your Savior. Even if you don't want the Bible or the new book, we would love to rejoice with you that you trusted Christ as your personal Lord and Savior. And again, remember, if you have any questions from today's teaching, you can text the same phone number, 703-844-9969. And then next week at the top of the hour, I'll try to answer as many of those questions as we can. So again, text us if you received Christ as your Lord and Savior. Text us if you have questions. We'd love to hear from you. And remember, Jesus is the resurrection and the life. Death has no hold on us. He has opened heaven wide for us who would believe and receive. I'm going to toss it over now to Pastor Austin for some closing words and a final word of prayer. God bless you and have a great rest of your day.